The following sermon was recorded at Chiang Mai Christian Fellowship in Chiang Mai, Thailand. For more information, please view our website at www.ccfth.org. What I want to do this, to, to start with this morning is just define what abiding is. Uh, just to come up with kind of a working definition. This is dangerous because Jesus, I wish Jesus would have done this. I wish when he wrote scripture, he would have had like a glossary of terms in the back, you know, where it says abiding. I could just look it up and I would have this clear, precise definition. Instead, he gives us word pictures that are honestly kind of fuzzy, you know, grapevines. It's like, okay, I get the picture, but I need a definition. Right? So I, I've come up with a definition that's not inspired I hope it's helpful. But before we get to the definition of what I think abiding is, let me talk just a minute about some misconceptions about abiding. Because I think one of the problems I know in my own life is that I've had a lot of faulty, incomplete, not necessarily wrong, but incomplete ideas about what abiding is. And they, they really kind of follow a progression. And the first part of this progression is this idea that abiding is, is equal to or is communion with Jesus through prayer and worship. And there's actually a lot of stuff written along this vein in this line. And when you read a lot about abiding in Christ, what often people talk about is, you know, uh, abiding is about a relationship with Christ, which is true, but they confine and limit that relationship purely to my, my interaction with him through devotions, basically, through spiritual disciplines. That abiding means prayer, contemplation, meditation, and Bible study. And that that's where um, uh, abiding takes place. So the more I'm in fellowship with Jesus, the more I'm in, in direct communion with him, the more I'm abiding. Well, if you follow the logic of that, the next step would be, therefore, the more fervent our devotion and the more extreme our spiritual rigors and disciplines, the more we're abiding, right? So if prayer and fellowship and meditation is abiding, then uh, the guy who prays for five minutes is not abiding nearly as much as the guy who prays for five hours, right? And if you want to be really abiding 24-7, you've got to learn how to somehow pray 24-7. And if you read a lot of writers, and especially a lot of kind of the old mystics and the monks and people like that, that's how they conceive it, and that's how they tried to live it out. And so what happens is a lot of the guys that talk about abiding and try to apply this tend to be monks who lived 500 years ago who had no life, right? No life and no wife and no children, right? And uh, guys like Brother Lawrence is a famous one. And I, I mean, I like what Brother Lawrence writes. I'm not saying what he writes is necessarily wrong. But this whole idea that I need to practice the presence of God. Okay, now here's a guy who had no life and his only task, duty in life was washing dishes, right? And so he goes through all these great links and jumps through these hoops to turn every event of his day, which was three things, breakfast dishes, lunch dishes, and dinner dishes, into a prayer meeting, right? And so he talks about how you, you, how you can do this, right? Um, clearly, the guy did not live in the century we live in, right? And, uh, and we try to do this, you know, maybe you try, we read the book, got pumped up, I'm going to do this, I'm going to practice the presence of Jesus, right? Anybody had that to work for you in our world, right? I've never got that to work. I've never got this thing where just I'm talking to Jesus, praying all day long, driving, talking, studying, talking, answering emails, just me and Jesus, right? No, because 
I don't know about you, but my brain is not capable of that, right? When I'm, when I'm talking to somebody or when I'm answering emails or when I'm having a meeting, Jesus checks out of my brain. Sorry, right? Because I can't do two things at once. Now, I can either say, okay, you all shut up because I'm talking to Jesus now. Or I've got to say to Jesus, Jesus, sorry, but I can't do both, right? So, but that, that's kind of the, what, what gets taught or what gets expected about if I'm going to abide in Christ, I've got to turn my whole world into one constant prayer conversation with Jesus, right? Which maybe you can do if you're like, you know, multiple personality disordered or something. But for most of us, it's not, uh, it doesn't work. And, and it's, it's not realistic, but also it's not an adequate understanding of what abiding is, right? Take it to the next logical level. Okay, if you go down this process of thinking, uh, the consequence of that is that um, true abiding, this true abiding life, can only be a- achieved by a person who has experienced many years of, of growth and spiritual formation, right? So, like, the abiding life is like Moses, right? Like, uh, you know, and, and we think of guys like Martin Luther, right? Uh, these monkish kinds of guys who had no wife, no life, no anything, and who, um, who have turned spiritual formation uh, into this process of developing people with these in- extraordinary skills of devotion and discipline, right? So it looks like this, you know, they uh, get up at 4 o'clock in the morning, right? And they have their six hours of prayer, skipping the break in breakfast, leaving only the fast, Right? Think about that. Uh, uh, after their six hours of prayer, they go out and translate the whole Greek New Testament into some mother tongue by lunch. Uh, they eat bread and water for lunch. Afterwards, they go out and evangelize some village and bring a whole village to Christ. In the evening, they uh, have revival meetings where they have this on-fire preaching, and they do miracles, and they heal people. And then they return to the room at 10 o'clock for two more hours of prayer and Bible study to retire at midnight, to start the thing all over again at 4 o'clock, right? That's the abiding life. Well, that's the abiding life. I'll never get there. Because, for one, I require a whole lot more than four hours of sleep, right? It's like, you know, if that's the picture, then abiding means you don't, you don't need to sleep or apparently eat, right? Is that what it is, right? Is that what, what, what Jesus meant when he said, abide in me? Well, clearly, I don't think so. Um, so what is the real meaning? Well, I would define it or explain it this way. That for one, uh, abiding is something Jesus expected every believer to be able to do, right? Jesus did not say, you know, I hope and pray, disciples, that someday, many, many years from now, you know, you will grow and mature to the place where you could actually really abide in Christ, right? No, he doesn't do that. He says to all the disciples, hey, you should be abiding in me. Right? From, from the very first person who's just come to Christ to a person who's been a believer for decades, Jesus expected that they could all abide in Christ. Right? And uh, so our definition has to include like how most of us live real life. Um, uh, it is not about achieving super saint status. In fact, I would say that the only way, if you, if you aspire to super saint status, which if you do, go for it, okay? I'm not saying you shouldn't, because we should all aspire to that, okay? We should all aspire to do great things for God. 
And we should all aspire. I mean, I, it's awesome. If, if any of you can pray six hours a day and that's how you start your day, that's awesome. Aspire to that, right? But I'm telling you, you'll never get there until you learn how to abide first, right? Abiding is the process by which we can develop that kind of strength and endurance and uh, discipline and habits to actually live out that kind of godly life, okay? We don't get that first, then we start abiding. So here's my definition. Um, Abiding is a way of doing life, of living life, in an intimate connection with Christ. And that's where we get this... uh, that, you know, that we are in Christ and he is in us. That is, at its core is what abiding is. It's connected to Christ at the deepest, most intimate personal level where we are in him and he is in us. The nature of this relationship is that Jesus is everything to us. Okay, the nature of it is Jesus becomes everything to us. Uh, meaning... Uh, among many things, meaning that he is the full supply of all that we need. So that's the picture of the vine and the branches. Right? The vine supplies everything that the branch needs to sustain its life. And we, in ter- uh, and, um, and we in turn, are everything to him. Okay? We are everything to Christ. He gave his life for us. He longs to help us. It is his single focus to bring about in us this kind of godly life that he saved us for um, so that we can be everything to the Father. So that our life and everything about it would be honoring to the Father. The outcome of this relationship is that our lives would produce results for God's kingdom and glory. Right? Again, it's, it's, it's not scripture. It's not a perfect definition, but it's a starting place. The problem with this definition, however, is it still for me uh, is way too abstract and fuzzy. All right. So I want to take the rest of our time and, and really try to s- clarify and try to give a, a more clear picture of what this really looks like in everyday life. Because part of the problem is this whole Jesus and me and me and Jesus thing is just way too cosmic for like how I live, right? What does that really mean? Uh, so let's try to bring it down to a more practical picture. And to do that, we want to look in Matthew chapter 11 at this idea of uh, Jesus inviting us, calling us to take his rest. Uh, So let me read again from Matthew 11, 28 to 30. Jesus says, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, are burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Uh, Jesus here promises twice that uh, he wants to give us rest. Is anybody here in need of rest? Raise your hand. Okay, those of you who aren't, I've got work for you, right? (laughs) Get to work. Uh, Rest, right? Well, probably, maybe not this morning, maybe you had a good night's sleep, but all of us at some points in our life feel, man, I could use rest. It sounds pretty good. Um, uh, And and it's interesting, this does not sound like the life of an ascetic monk, right? Unless you picture, unless unless Jesus means by rest, I want you praying 12 hours a day. I don't think that's what he's picturing here, right? Uh, And the question we have to ask at the very beginning of the passage is, rest from what? 
Okay, what exactly does Jesus mean when he says he wants to give you rest? Now, some of you are thinking, uh, I know what rest I need. What the rest I need is called early retirement, right? And uh, we picture rest as being, you know, life on the beach or life in some secluded cabin where I have no duties, no responsibilities. You know, I never have to answer another email or take another phone call. That sounds, and that, to me, honestly, that sounds like rest. Sounds pretty good. However, the problem with that view is I, I fail to see how that will produce much fruit for God's kingdom, right? Uh, abiding will produce results, right? So checking out, taking early retirement is not probably going to produce much in terms of work for the kingdom. So that's probably not what Jesus has in mind here. Um, most commentators, when you read commentaries about this passage, and you probably have understood it this way, uh, would say that it's rest from keeping the law in order to be saved. And if you look at the context of this, that certainly would be part of it. Um, in fact, if we read, uh, back up a little bit and read, um, Jesus says, uh, oh, and this should sound really super familiar. If you've been here with this through the study through Luke, this should sound really familiar. O Father, Lord of heaven and earth, thank you for hiding these things from those who think themselves wise and clever and for revealing it to infants, to babies. Yes, Father, it pleased you to do it this way. My Father has entrusted everything to me. No one truly knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and those to whom the Son chooses to reveal himself. That's the context. We just looked at this in Luke a couple weeks ago, right? And the idea is that uh, the Pharisees, the religious leaders of Jesus' day, uh, were not getting it, right? They were not walking in the right path. And, and uh, certainly they were loading people down with this burden, this weight of keeping the law. And certainly uh, you can look at this passage this way, and that's partly true, because certainly Jesus is lifting off of them the burden of keeping the law. There's two problems, though, with understanding this passage only in that context. Um, and the, the first problem is that the language of this passage is language of discipleship, not conversion. And we'll see that in just a minute. What Jesus is talking about here is not getting saved, it's being discipled. Right? So uh, the burden he's talking about here can't just be, well, you don't have to follow the laws, you're saved by grace. That is a burden lifted. But that's not what he's talking about here. Second problem is this. The demands that Jesus put on his disciples, were they actually less than the requirements the Pharisees were, or were they more? Okay, was Jesus asking less or more? Think back to Matthew, the Sermon on the Mount. Right? Does Jesus say, oh, you guys are making this way too hard. Let me make it easier for you. Is that how you read the Sermon on the Mount? Not how I read it, right? I read it as... Jesus is saying, you think you're keeping it to here, but what I expect is way beyond that. And you're not keeping it. The reality is that the, the, the requirements, the demands that Jesus asks is more, not less. And so if it's in terms of how we live out and uh, how we live righteousness, uh, Jesus does not diminish the burden. The reality is Jesus increases it. He makes the, the demands upon us greater. So for those two reasons, I think that's a poor, even though all commentators would say that, I think it's a poor in interpretation of what Jesus is teaching here. Right? Uh, 
The rest he's talking about is not the burden of keeping the law. It's more than that. What exactly is the rest about? What is he talking about here? How do we best understand this rest that Jesus promises? Well, um, let's back up a little bit and think about our efforts to get it right, right? I'm sure just about all of us in this room really do desire to get the spiritual life right, right? We, we want to do the right thing. We want to follow Christ and we want our life to, to be godly, to have character and to bear fruit for his kingdom. So how do we do that uh, typically? Um, well, um, I think it starts like this, okay? And, and just hang with me for a minute. And maybe, maybe you've experienced this at some point in your life. I know I have. Um, we start with a choice of our will to follow God, right? And uh, maybe you were at a church service or a revival meeting or some kind of special meetings where you were called to make a commitment to really follow Christ. And that's important, and the Scripture calls us to that. And so with our will, we choose to start doing the right thing. And we decide, yeah, I'm going to follow God. I'm going to dedicate my life. I'm going to get serious. I'm going to make an earnest effort to do this right. And by doing the right thing, there's negatively doing the right thing by not sinning, right? By avoiding the things we're not supposed to do. But it also means positively by starting to do the things that God commands us. To love people, to proclaim the good news, to be... um, Showing kindness to the poor, right? Those are the the negative and and positive sides of doing the right thing. Um, And so we seek to bear our wills upon our body and make our body cooperate. So as again, like like how this this got taught to me from day one is that means first thing you got to do is you got to get up early and have your devotions, like, right? So you get up at 4 o'clock, 5 o'clock, 7.30, and... um, and you're going to pray and read your Bible because, you know, that's, it, all, it all hinges on this, right? If you don't get this part right, you can't do any of the rest of it, right? So you set your alarm, you get up, and you get up whatever hour you're managed to get up, and you try to read your Bible, and you're really going to do this. You're going to make your body, get in shape, and, and be determined to, to work this out, right? Well, this is how it happens for me. I get up early, start reading my Bible. I'm all excited, you know. About 15 minutes, 15 minutes into it, man, I'm snoozing like, you know, a bear in hibernation, right? I'm passed out, unconscious. So after, you know, half an hour of struggling through trying to, you know, wake myself up, 10 cups of coffee, you know, finally the brain starts to work, right? And I finally start being able to read past the first three words over and over and over and over again, right? I get through the whole verse, right? I start to wake up and all of a sudden I start getting a little bit into it. And then my brain starts wandering to every corner of the universe, right? And I can never get to the second verse because I'm constantly distracted, right? Constantly distracted. And my mind's going here, my mind's going there. And I, oh, I got to check my email. I got to check Facebook. And you know, I'm distracted by 10,000 interruptions, right? Well, after an hour of hopelessly trying to read my Bible and getting all the way through two and a half verses, I give up that attempt, Right? And we move on, and we, we begin to discover soon, sooner or later 
that while our wills are committed to this thing, and we're serious about our commitment, okay, we're not just playing games with ourselves, we're serious about our commitment, but we discovered that our lives are quite divided. And uh, while our wills want this, there's a whole lot of the rest of us that's just not buying into this thing, right? That's going, uh, hey, it's breakfast time, right? Would you quit this Bible reading thing and get on with breakfast, right? Or, uh, you know, your phone starts going off with emails and, man, you're, oh, I got to answer this, right? I got to talk, I got to do this, I got to check that, right? And we are divided. And no matter how much we want to do something, we, we don't get there because uh, we want other things, right? We, we honestly want and oftentimes need other things than just reading our Bible. And those things start to nag at us and distract us. And, and what's worse, and, and sometimes the, the most horrible, lustful, sinful desire kind of thoughts come when I'm trying to read my Bible. You ever have that experience, right? Trying to read your Bible, and all these horrible thoughts just keep popping into your head, right? Because we want different things. We are divided in our life. And will is not enough. So we start struggling with these things. And... Uh, whether at that time or as we go through the day, uh, our mind turns constantly to the things it wants, the things it desires, the things it thinks it needs. And that comes in the form of worry, anxiety, frustration, fear, right? And, and so we start thinking about certain things and those thoughts uh, govern our choices and our attitudes and our actions. Um, and, uh, and we find that, again, all these forces are working together. Here's, here's an example of this, of how, you know, our desires, uh, getting our needs met, what we think about those things, just dominate our life. I just saw things, um, a survey that was done by, uh, and I, this is just mind-boggling to me, but apparently there's a, a website, a dating website. You know, they got these different dating websites but this is not your normal, average, typical dating website. This dating website is for people who are already married, right? So the way this works is you're married, but you want to, you know, have a fling, have an affair, whatever, cheat. There's websites to help you do that now. Crazy. Well, they, they, uh, the people who set up this website, I don't know why, but they wanted to know the difference, the, the, the connection between religious values and cheating, Right? So they did a survey to determine the religious values of their customers. And they sent out something to over 100,000 of their customers. A huge chunk of them replied back, determining their religious values. Well, well guess what? A quarter of them would call themselves evangelical Christians. Another quarter, another 25%, would call themselves Protestant. And the third 25% would call themselves Catholic. Right? So that means that three-fourths of the people using this webpage would say they believe in the morals taught in Scripture. But clearly they're not living out those morals very well if they're on that website. Mind-boggling. So so you see that the deal is our will wants something, but our mind and our desires and our thoughts consume us and keep us from living those things out. Um, throw in there uh, our shipwrecked feelings and emotions that get in the, 
the middle of it. And the bottom line is our bodies, which is the point where we live out and where we interact through our thoughts and our words and our actions, what our, our will and our mind and our thoughts are thinking, oftentimes does the wrong thing, right? Has anybody experienced that ever, <laughs> right? Where you were determined to follow Christ, you were serious about it, but the reality is throughout the day you're, you find your body and your mind drifting into things that you know are not Christ-honoring, that you know are not bearing fruit for his kingdom. Right? Anybody have been there? Right? Well, what went wrong? Right? What went wrong? And, and usually what happens at the end of this whole process is we feel terribly guilty that we lashed out and said a, an angry word, that we thought an impure thought, that we read the wrong kind of book, that we you know, got in a fight with somebody, uh, that we were jealous, that we were fearful, that we're consumed with anxiety. We know that, right? And we feel what about it? We feel happy about that? We feel joy? No, we feel what? Guilt. Guilt. Frustration, right? So what do we say to ourselves? I need to do what? I need to try harder. I need to rededicate my life to God. I need to get up at, you know, I need to really get up tomorrow at 4 o'clock and I really need to read my Bible. I've got to do this. I've got to try harder to live a godly life. Right? Uh, is that just my experience or is that how oftentimes a Christian life has unfolded for you? For me, it has many, many times. Um, well, Jesus says this. He says, listen to these words, right? Jesus says, come to me, all you who labor and are burdened. Right? Just come to me, all you who keep trying so hard to get it right. Who are burdened with the guilt of failure. And I will give you rest. Right? The rest that I think he's talking about is rest from you and I trying so hard and laboring so hard and working so hard at living out this Christian life trying to do the right thing. Right? Not because we're not supposed to be doing the right thing. We are. But the problem is we will never get there by trying harder. Right? Even though, you know, a lot of us have made a lifetime career of this. Like, we've become experts at trying harder. And you may have some measure of success. And probably if you're here this morning, you're here because you're a very disciplined person and because you have overcome certain hurdles and obstacles. And for you, to some extent, maybe trying hard has worked. To a level, right? But you're worn out. You're worn out. And it's not the life of abiding in Christ, okay? It is not what it means to abide in Christ. What Jesus is talking about is something radically different. Uh, and it is not trying to live out our life by our own effort and hard work, um, and one of the ways we know that we're there is that we just feel burdened, right? We feel guilty. We feel down. We feel like we're losing. We feel like we're failing. And that failure is painful and impossible to own up to. Okay? And here's a way you know you're abiding in Christ. When you can fail often and it's like, yeah, I failed. Isn't that great? <laughs> if you're in that place in your life, you're in a good place, right? Okay, not because you're callous about sin, but because you recognize that, yes, I am going to fail. Right? I am just going to fail because it's not about me. 
beating sin on my own. It's part of the process, right? Um, so what then is abiding? What is the answer that Jesus gives? Well, he wants to give us rest, and he says, the way you'll do this, the way I, I will help you overcome, uh, and my alternative to you trying hard is simply this. He says, take my yoke upon you and learn from me. For I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. Uh, what is the yoke of Christ? Well, the yoke of Christ is, first of all, giving up, trying to do it on your own. It's giving up. Uh, and I really believe this is a, a vivid, concrete picture, for me anyway, of what it means to abide in Christ. It means to take on, to put on the yoke of Christ. Uh, some things you need to understand about, uh, two things that I want you to understand about a yoke. And the first one is this. And there's, I love the picture on the, on the overhead, uh, picture of a yoke. And uh, a yoke is built for how many? Two, right? No such thing as a single yoke. A yoke is, is always a pair. In fact, the, the Greek word that's used for yoke comes from the original word that means to join two things together. Okay, so in, in their mind, in, in Jesus' day, when they would talk about a yoke, they never thought about a yoke solo. Okay, a yoke always meant a pair. A yoke of oxen was two, right? Uh, in 1 Corinthians, Jesus, uh, Paul says, do not be unequally yoked. Uh, that is, joined together or paired with a non-believer, right? So the whole concept of a yoke is, the, is not just the idea of taking on an instrument that is a labor device, which we'll talk about that in a minute, but it first and foremost is a picture of being connected with somebody, of being yoked together with someone. Well, Jesus says, take my yoke. In other words, Jesus is saying, I want you to yoke your, your life to my life, right? Now, to me, this is a much more clear, vivid, and I, I can grasp this picture of abiding. Okay, abiding means that I, I am attaching my life to that of Christ so that we together are going to do life side by side. Right? Uh, we're going to put on the yoke of Christ. We are going to do life together with Christ at my side every step of the way, everywhere we go. And the yoke is, is designed for work where? In the barn or in the field? In the field, right? Okay, in the field. So in other words, the field is out there where you're plowing, where you are living out life every day, where you are encountering obstacles and struggles and trials and challenges. Okay, the yoke is not for the barn. Um, it's for life. It's for where we live out our Christian existence. So that's the whole thing with this, this whole idea that abiding is what I do in my quiet time, Right? That's putting the yoke on to hang out in the barn. <laughs> That's kind of silly. Okay, it's ridiculous. Uh, that is not what Jesus had in mind by abiding. Um, and, and, and the reality is that most spiritual dis disciplines, if they're not correctly understood, which we'll talk on the third week about how spiritual disciplines are part of this, and, and I do believe there's a role for that. But the problem is that the wrong idea about spiritual disciplines Disciplines about prayer, Bible study, meditation uh, are, are all about walking with Jesus when there's nothing else going on. Okay. And honestly, when you're in the barn chilling, it's easy to abide in Christ, right? Um, I mean, if you're ever going to have the easiest path of communion with God, when, when nobody's in your face, that's the easiest time to do it, right? 
But that's not what Jesus is talking about. He's talking about being yoked together when we go out there into the field, into life, and we encounter life together. And we do that with Jesus beside us as we walk step by step through every day, not in an extended prayer meeting, but in life. In life, where we're living out what it means to live, what it means to have relationships and to do work and to have problems and to fail and to uh, be confronted with uh, choices. Uh, But the point is that I don't do that anymore alone. I do that yoked to Jesus, connected to him, so that we are pulling the load together. And I love this picture because he's there not only as an advisor, not only as a cheerleader, but he's there actually with the yoke on, uh, bearing that burden with us, right? And, uh, and this is a pretty good deal, because like, there's me, you know, uh, 30-pound weakling, and there's Jesus, Brahma Bull, right? I'm loving being yoked to him, because uh, when, it, when it comes down to it, who's really doing most of the pulling? Jesus, right? It's like when I have to uh, move something heavy and one of my little three or four-year-old grandkids are around and want to help, you know, and I'm lugging this big, huge table. Oh, can I help? Sure, right? They put their hand on the table. <laughs> I helped, right? Yeah, good. It's kind of how it is with us and Jesus, right? He's carrying much of the weight and burden of it. He's the one do, who's doing the, the bulk of the work as we pull together. Right? And I am not doing it uh, alone, Uh, I am doing it step by step with him. So that's one part of the picture. Okay, we are attached to, connected to uh, Christ. Not just in a prayer time, but all day long. Second side of it, though, is the yoke is a picture of surrender. Right? When you put on a yoke, you are no longer free to go where you want. Especially if you're attached to Jesus, right? Right? You're tied to him. You're going where he's going, right? Uh, there is something in, in uh, taking on this yoke that requires surrender. Surrender, right? Um, we must give up our will, right? Our freedom, our choice, right? And we yield to his authority and power over us. Uh, otherwise, we cannot be rightly attached to Christ. Right? So there's surrender involved. But there's two interesting sides to surrender. Um, uh, I got this partly from Andrew Murray, but it's just very brilliant. Uh, putting on the yoke of Christ is joining my life completely to his in surrender to him, giving up all to Jesus then receiving all from Jesus. That's Andrew Murray's line. Giving up all to Jesus, at the same time receiving all from Jesus and learning how to live life to his glory. What does that mean? Well, it means I give up to Jesus my will, my ideas, my thoughts, my needs, my problems, my struggles, my dreams, my everything. Surrender means laying that all down before God and saying, God, I yield my will, my thoughts to you. I lay them down before you. Uh, But it also means this. It means that we receive from Jesus, trusting his plan and will, and waiting for his supply and provision to seek 
uh, to meet all my needs. Because I'm giving up to Jesus my agenda, my goals, my plans, my desires. But I'm also receiving from him everything I need to live a successful life. To actually to live at all, not just a successful life, but everything I need to live. Okay, everything I need to live. That's the picture of the vine and the branch. Okay, one of the reasons that the, uh, the branch cannot produce fruit outside of the vine is that it can't live. Right? Everything that it needs to sustain its life comes through the vine. Right? And surrendering to Christ, attaching yourself to him and yoking yourself with him means that you now trust him to meet every single need in your life. Okay, we'll talk in a minute how that looks. Um, uh, but what it does mean is this, that I'm going to surrender my efforts to meet my own needs. Right? I'm going to surrender my efforts to meet my own needs. Uh, well, how does that work? What does that look like in our daily life? Uh, as we struggle with sinful desires, as, as we deal with bad habits, as we try to create good habits, um, how, do we, how does this work? Well, Jesus says this. He says, take my yoke upon you and do what? Learn from me. Right? Learn from me, uh, for I am gentle and lowly in heart. So not only does Jesus walk with us in every circumstance, but he comes alongside to teach us how to live. Now this word, I love this word, learn. Okay, you could circle or underline this in your Bible. Great word, learn from me. And the word comes from the word, the Greek word that we get the word math from. Anybody here a math student? <laughs> nobody. Nobody, nobody here is a math student. Good for you. I love seeing that because I hate math, <laughs> personally. Um, Greek word is the Greek word uh, um, mathete or mathetes, right? Uh, we get the word math from it. And it has nothing to do with numbers, believe it or not. The word math has nothing to do with numbers. It literally means a student, a learner, right? Uh, it's somebody who's going through the steps and learning the process to solve equations, right? Um, the noun of this verb, the noun form of it, is the word we get the word disciple from. And so what he's really talking about here is discipleship. He says, take my yoke upon you and I will personally disciple you. Now, this is brilliant. Uh, if you're involved in discipleship, which you're, if you're a believer, you should be. We should all be involved in discipleship. Discipleship is essentially uh, not dumping information into people. It is essentially bringing people to the place where they are being discipled by Jesus himself. Right? Uh, the word has the idea to learn by use and practice to be in the habit of or accustomed to something. Okay, it's, it's not the appropriation of just knowledge, but it comes through surrender of one's will and judgment and keeping oneself open to the word of the Father, which leads men to follow Jesus. Right? A better picture of this would be the idea of an apprenticeship. Right? An apprentice is one who walks with the teacher, and they're not just getting instruction, but they're really learning how to do this through use and through practice. And that's what Jesus promises to do for us. He comes alongside us in order to disciple us uh, by helping us live life successfully by going through the steps, uh, not just of information, 
not just so that we can win a Bible trivia, as cool as that is, but so that we know how to live. So what does that look like? Um, and by the way, it says he does this in a way that's humble and gentle, right? In other words, he's patient, he's slow. He, d- he can do this with a person who's a brand new Christian, right? who's a brand new Christian. And he doesn't come in with a wrecking ball and praise God, Jesus doesn't try to fix everything in your life all at once. Are you thankful for that? Because right? like when we first start off with Jesus, everything in my life is wrong. Like now only half of the things in my life are wrong. But um, Jesus doesn't come in and start pointing out every single thing in your life that's wrong and demanding you to fix it all at once. Because we just, I mean, we couldn't do it, right? He is humble. He's gentle. He's patient. And he starts with maybe some of the bigger problems, right? Uh, Or at least some of the more present ones. And he starts teaching us how to do that differently. Um, and he says it's the easy way. All right, so this is how it works. Um, and again, uh, you, know, you got to apply this in your own life, but I think it goes like this. Um, I, I choose, I decide, I surrender my life to walk with Jesus, right? to yoke myself with him. Uh, not just during my devotions, but more importantly, through the midst of my everyday activities and events, right? So in my relationships, in my interactions with people, in the decisions I make, in the work I do, in the things I think about, right? I walk down a path where Jesus is with me in those things. And I want to serve him. My will wants to do the right thing. Um, uh, But I must do what? I must give up everything to him, and receive everything from him. So the first thing I will discover as I sit down and I start to have my quiet time, and the first thing I think about in my quiet time is uh, things that I have not yet surrendered to him, right? right? Things that I am still holding on to. Um, for me, uh, one of the most powerful events in my life when I saw this and did not do it well was way back when I was working for a different mission organization in the United States. Um, One of my needs, one of my needs was to be right, right? I think it comes with being a firstborn. Anybody here firstborn? You probably suffer from the same thing. We just need to be right. And the thing is, it's a good thing because mostly we are, (laughs) right? So it's natural for us. (laughs) My wife's about to throw things at me. (sighs) need a deflection shield here. Uh, need to be right, right? Well, I got embroiled in this crazy, ridiculous theological debate with my mission organization. They were trying to uh, change their doctrinal statement into something I thought was heresy, right? And of course, you've got to fight against heresy. And if you're going to have a good war, you can always have a good war over heresy. Because like, you, you're actually allowed to burn people at the stake for heresy, right? So, um, you know, so I... I got into this war. But the reality is, when I, when I think about it, it was not just that um, I wanted truth, which I, I think I was right in my doctrinal position, but it really was about something much more than that. I needed to be right. I needed them to respect me, right? I needed them to go, wow, Tim, you know, you were right. You should be like president of the world, right? <laughs> right? Um, 
And so even though maybe the fight was correct, the way I went about it was prideful and, uh, and consuming, right? It was consuming. And I would sit down to, to try to pray and, you know, abide in Christ. And I was just consumed with thoughts about this. But what I wanted to say to these, you, you ever done this? You know, you work out these 10-hour-long dialogues with these people and how you're going to win, how you're going to convince them you're right. right? And, uh, and, and then, of course, the next dangerous step was when you start writing down those things and sending emails and letters to people, right? Because cause you can't take what's in your head, you know, nobody knows. When you start sending it, you start, you know, asking for a fight, and then they answer back, and oh, they say the wrong thing, and they didn't. And you just get more consumed and more wrapped up and more consumed with my need to be right, for my need to be respected, for my need to be treated with uh, all the glory I think I should get, right? Well, um, you know, that, that's not abiding with Christ. So what needed to happen? Well, what needed to happen is this, that I surrender to Christ my, my will and my agenda, right? And I come to those places when I'm consumed with all that stuff, right? And when I am just in turmoil and my, my thoughts are going crazy, right? I need to do what? Well, I need to invite Christ into that. And I need to say, Lord Jesus, I surrender those needs to you, Right? My need to be right, my need to be best, my, my need to be respected, right? whatever it is. You start with realizing, yeah, my will wants to do this thing, but there is something in me. There are needs and wants and desires that are running counter to my will. And you cannot will yourself to overcome those desires. Okay, you can't. You cannot. Okay, you will never will yourself to overcome those desires that are in you. What you need is you need to surrender those things to Christ and say, okay, Lord Jesus, together, let's look at this. What is it I want out of this? Is it my fame, my glory, my respect? Uh, What are the needs in my life that I uh, feel are being neglected or overlooked or, you know, whatever? Okay, I give those things up to Christ. I surrender those things to Christ and I say to him, I have no right to those things when I am yoked to you, right? I surrender those things. You see, right there we start changing the battle because now it's no longer a battle of my will. It's a battle of surrender where I'm giving up my rights to have those needs met, especially by my own hand, by my own effort, by my own working, Right? But then the second side of, remember, so there's two sides to surrender. What's the second side? I give everything to Jesus, and then what do I do? I receive everything from him. Say, so look, Jesus, um, the reality is I do need things, right? If I'm going to be successful, if I'm going to be fruitful, I need, I need uh, the needs of my life met. And you lay those things out before him, Right? You say, Jesus, I am going to trust you to meet those needs in my life, right? Because um, here's, here's the reality. And if I need respect, okay, if I ever heard Jesus say, well done, thou good and faithful servant, 
Right? What could ever top that? Right? What could ever top that if Jesus affirms you? Right? I, I receive from him what I need, and I trust and I look to him to meet those needs in my life that will give me the resources and thoughts and skills and focus I need to be fruitful. Right? So this never happens. Denise and I never have disagreements ever. Right? And when we do, I never need to be right, right, ever, uh, being very facetious. But sometimes it, it does happen, and right, and, and uh, I may not be getting my needs met, and she doesn't feel that she's getting her needs met, and we could just go at each other, right? We could, yet we could accuse, we could be angry, we could say bad, you know, wrong words, and not affirm, and accuse and blame. But what do we need to do? Well, I need to. Learn from Jesus, right? I need to allow him to disciple me. Say, God, I give my needs up to you. Now I need you to teach me what I need to say to help her, right? Because that will produce fruit for his kingdom. The things I say, I guarantee are not going to help. I tried it. (laughs) It didn't help, right? It's like, Jesus, I don't know what to say. I don't know what to say. I need you to give me the words that will speak healing and peace into this situation. And it's not that Jesus is not going to say, may give you really hard things to say, right? Maybe we need to confront somebody about a sin in their life, but we're going to do it because Jesus has given us the words to say. Because he is discipling us, he is coaching us, he is teaching us how to confront this situation. So you get the picture here? So here, here's the deal. Abiding is 99% outside of your prayer closet. Abiding is 99% as you live out your life day by day in relationships where you always are saying the wrong things. And where you're always feeling these feelings and where you're always struggling with these things. And that's where you're supposed to be. And you're supposed to be dealing with those things. But you need to be dealing with them attached to Jesus Right? connected with him, where together you are facing those problems and you're saying to him, oh, Lord Jesus, I can't do this. Right? I'm frustrated and I need your help. I surrender. I give up. Help me know what to do. Will Jesus teach you? Right? Will Jesus teach you what to do? We well, just promised here, take my yoke upon you and let me teach you. Learn from me. Believe me, Jesus wants to teach you how to overcome in each of these struggles of your life. He wants to disciple you. And he wants to produce in you the kind of habits and thoughts and characteristics that will do what? Well, will bear fruit for his kingdom. That will transform your life, and not only your life, but the relationships and lives of people that you are in contact with every day in ways that will impact eternity, right? in ways that will make a difference in your life and theirs for eternity. Right? That's what it means to abide in Christ. Um, you know, here's the thing. You get into one of those situations, you, you find yourself engaged in a very not Christ-honoring conversation, the feelings are cropping up in you and you're just wanting to like really get even. 
Okay, don't do this. Don't go, oh man, if I had only had my quiet time this morning, I would be prepared for this. Stop that, okay? That has nothing to do with it. Because the reality is, you could have had your quiet time and still be in the exact same place, right? 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 You don't need more quiet time. Okay, and again, we'll talk about... Uh, We'll talk about the disciplines. You know, there's a place and there's a reason and there are, are things that are important about our, our quiet time, our, our reading the word and our prayer. But what you need in that point is not to say, well, tomorrow I'm going to get up earlier, I'm going to try harder, I'm going to read my Bible more, and so tomorrow I won't have this problem. Not true. It's flat out not true. What you need is to do it right at that moment. You need to start abiding in Christ. You say, right now, regardless of how prayed up I am, Lord Jesus, I need you. Right? I need to connect my life to you right in this moment, right in this situation, right in this uh, difficulty. And I need desperately to surrender all this junk to you. And I need you to teach me and give me what I need to be successful here. Will Jesus do that? Absolutely. Absolutely. Right? That's what it means, I believe to abide in Christ. You've been listening to a sermon recorded at Chiang Mai Christian Fellowship in Chiang Mai, Thailand. For more information, please view our website at www.ccfth.org.